in Washington and in New York, uh, but we're very glad you uh, spent some of your valuable time uh, with us this morning, and we could not be more delighted uh, than to welcome His Serene Highness Hereditary Prince Alois von Unzu Lichtenstein. That does not roll off the tongue, but Your Highness, we are very excited that you are here with us today as Liechtenstein celebrates its 300th anniversary. Yeah. You're a little older than the United States, but you're much younger than many uh, other European countries, and we are delighted to have you here with us uh, this morning. Um, colleagues, what we're going to do is have a conversation with His Highness uh, on Liechtenstein and a lot of the trade dynamics as a member of the European Free Trade Association and the uh, European Economic Area. And then we are going to have uh, an expert panel come up and help us think about the trade dynamics in Europe today, whether that's Brexit, whether that's the EU, its relationships with other non-EU members, and in transatlantic trade. But first, let me introduce properly uh, His Highness to you. Um, I learned something last evening that, uh, and, and CSIS hosts many interns here, that Your Highness was an intern in the Senate in the late 80s, which I think is fantastic, and spent a few months here uh, in Washington, but uh, received your uh, law degree from Salzburg University, uh, spent some time at the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst in the United Kingdom, and have now uh, taken on uh, the responsibilities uh, for Liechtenstein. So welcome. We're delighted to have you here. Well, thank you very much for having me and also for your interest in Liechtenstein and how we are integrated in Europe. Um, unfortunately, I have to say it wasn't a few months, it was only, a f I think, two and a half weeks, oh, half uh, the weeks. internship, because it was during the spring break, not the summer break. Uh, but uh, so it was spending, a very interesting time and I enjoyed to come back. Uh, spending your spring break in the Senate, that's an honorable <laughs> spring break activity. <laughs> Wonderful. No, well, we are glad that you got a little glimpse of, of the Senate. Your Highness, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, Liechtenstein and its trade relationship within Europe. If I understand my, st my statistics correctly, over 40% of Liechtenstein's uh, uh, trade is its, its exports. Uh, you are a very deeply integrated economy. Tell me a little bit about Liechtenstein, its trade relationship, and would love your reflections on its relationship with the European Union. Well, uh, Liechtenstein, I think it's important um, also for the audience to give the size of the country. <laughs> we are uh, a very small state, not the smallest one in Europe, we're the fourth smallest one, but we're 38,000 inhabitants. Uh, it is very important that we can trade. If we would have to sell all our products and services just in Liechtenstein, we would never be able to develop a sophisticated economy. And it really, Liechtenstein took off once um, the markets opened. We have to um, import almost everything and we have to pay for those imports by concentrating on a few things that we do well and export them. Um, 
very little of that, uh, almost 95% of our products and services are exported and uh, very little can be directly sold in Liechtenstein. Um, now, the key markets for us are the EU or the, well actually together with the other two EFTA countries, Norway, Iceland, the EEA, the common market through the European Economic Area Agreement, uh, the three of us participate in this common market. Um, then Switzerland is important, but if you look at countries themselves, Germany is the most important for us. But next comes actually the US. And Asia is also an uh, important part. Um, and um, Liechtenstein is perhaps best known internationally for its financial center, but we actually, the, Europe, I think, among the most industrialized countries uh, in the world with almost 40% of GDP and people employed in the manufacturing industry, and that's also one reason why this um, access to the common market is so important. As you think about the European Free Trade uh, Association and your growing links, what, what has been something that has struck you as being so critically important to be in that, in that structure? Mm -hmm. When uh, the common market was created, uh, we realized that um, the problem of tariffs in the trade context was already reduced considerably, but there was a new problem of non-tariff barriers. And basically, how you go about them, you have to agree on common rules, uh, common standards, and for this perspective, at that time, very much for our industry, manufacturing industry, it was key to be part of this common market. It's obviously the, it's like if you're right placed in the middle of Europe. Um, so if everything around you has agreed on common standards, it's very important to be part of that. Um, it actually, um, at the beginning, our financial service industry was not so keen on it um, and we had to have a popular vote whether to um, uh, become member but now they are also very keen because internationally a lot of things developed you have you had this regulatory wave on financial markets and it brought <coughs> to us also the EU standards on the financial sector industry and certain sectors only evolved in Liechtenstein the insurance sector the fund management industry thanks to our membership of the EEA. You know, I think it's so funny that uh, no one likes change, uh, but once that change happens, uh, the openness of the markets uh, can both reform the industry, which is the change they don't like, but can see the, uh, the opportunity for sure. And I think you raise a very important point, particularly on the transatlantic trade relationship, that tariffs are actually quite low between the European Union and the US, uh, other countries, it's those non-tariff barriers where it's really the, the greatest benefit and the hardest to get that agreement, whether that's safety standards, whether uh, that's that agreement. Absolutely challenging. If I may, let me turn to another hot topic, certainly in Europe, and, and one thing that is so linked to trade, and that's the free movement of people. 
And Liechtenstein uh, uh, joined the Schengen Agreement since 2011. Of course, we, were, we watched Europe struggle with the migration crisis in 2015 and 2016. Some could argue Europe is still politically struggling uh, with that crisis of, of three years ago. How has that debate worked uh, in Liechtenstein? Obviously, again, a very small population. Uh, and, and help us understand that politically and, and what it's meant economically to Liechtenstein. Obviously, it was a big topic all around us and people got concerned. However, when we joined the European Economic Area, or the, when we became a member of the common market, we negotiated a clause to the free movement of people. It's, as you know, um, one of the four pillars uh, of the common market. And for us, we had at that time already more than a third foreigners living in Liechtenstein. And uh, given the size of our country, we would never have passed a popular vote if we would not have been able to restrict this freedom of the four freedoms. Um, so we agreed that we have to let in a certain amount every year, but not more. And that was actually already in place before we became a member of Schengen. Um, and as a result of that, people are less nervous um, about the migration, perhaps, than in other countries of Europe. And if you mm -hmm. see now this um, immigration, particularly in the context of asylum seekers, of uh, also uh, uncontrolled illegal immigration, um, yes, we had a certain amount of that also coming to Liechtenstein, but the problem is uh, once you try to register as an asylum seeker in Liechtenstein, uh, the rule is that you have then to stay there. And, and it's, it's a small country, so they prefer to go to bigger ones where they have more you know, possibilities, more room where they can then uh, travel to. And there's also the tendency that they prefer to go to centers where they have already uh, other people from a similar background where it's easier for them to integrate. So what you see in Europe is uh, people from certain um, countries go preferably to countries in Europe where they have already relatives, where they know there's already a community um, from their country of origin, where it's easier for them to find uh, perhaps uh, others that help them. And uh, what we rather had in Liechtenstein was so inner Europe, um, more from the Bal Balkan asylum seekers that uh, didn't really, where it was clear from the beginning that they would not have a possibility to stay long, but they, they're just doing kind of an asylum seeking um, tour around Europe. They stay for a few months in one place and then they go on to the next one as soon as they know they don't get another permit. Yeah, no. It sounds like you've managed, uh, managed that challenge uh, quite well. Let me turn to sort of the elephant in the European room, which of course is Brexit. And would just welcome your reflections uh, as you watch this story unfold. 
Um, if you could offer some advice to Prime Minister Boris Johnson as he thinks about uh, the future relationship uh, between the UK and the EU from your own experience. Obviously, I know we are talking about dramatically different sized economies. I understand that. But uh, Liechtenstein has had a, an experience of being a non-EU member, surrounded by EU members, but has, has gone towards a different mechanism of, of alignment. So here's your shot. Give the prime minister mm. a little advice. Well, he may need some. <laughs> it's good practice not to give advice uh, as true. a foreign head of state to another uh, state. However, I can uh, tell you a bit about our experience, uh, what the benefits were, where the challenges are. Um, for us, uh, the EEA agreement is the perfect way to integrate in Europe. Um, it was actually not ourselves that negotiated it. It was um, at that time when the common market was created, the EFTA countries realized for them it's important to have some kind of a arrangement that goes beyond the free trade agreement with the EU so that they're not having the difficulties that explained before with non-tariff barriers. Um, so this year agreement was uh, negotiated at that time with um, Switzerland, Norway, Iceland, um, but including some newer EU members like Sweden, Austria, Finland. Um, it was really created for countries of that size and not of Liechtenstein's size, but we benefited um, that this agreement was finally then reached. Um, the Swiss decided not to join finally in a popular vote and they went for a bilateral vote, which wouldn't be much to come, so much difficult for us with a very, uh, say, small administration to always keep up to date. Um, the EA agreement is a dynamic agreement. It always adjusts to new developments on the EU side uh, to the standards and we uh, take them on. We can say certain things don't belong to the EA or we don't want it, uh, but then we really have to bring very good reasons forward. Um, it's not easy for such a small country as Liechtenstein to administer, but it works in practice reasonably well. Um, we have also a good understanding with Norway and Iceland on how to do it. Um, there's this clause that you have to agree among the three of us. There's this one voice principle. Uh, what kind of regulation to take on. Um, it has been working well. The EU side is also happy on how it works. As I said, it was very important for our manufacturing industry. It proved to be a big success for financial industry. If you asked the business community in Liechtenstein, are there people who were not so happy, then it was <coughs> the very small businesses, uh, the local carpenters and, and so on, that had uh, perhaps more of a closed market, a protected market, 
and uh, this market was opened as a result of that, and uh, they got more competition from particularly the Austrian side at that time. Uh, whereas our big companies, as Liechtenstein is a such a small market, they were never protected. You know? they, they always had to uh, be successful on the world market. It meant perhaps initially a bigger hurdle for them to you know, be able to thrive, but once they passed this hurdle, they had a good fitness test. Um, so for everyone else, it worked very well, and there was not too long ago a popular vote. Um, well, it was an opinion poll, not a popular vote. Um, and it had um, approval rates of 85%. So it, it really is uh, well, let's say, anchored in our uh, society in the meantime. I remember when there was much discussion in the UK uh, about uh, a Norway plus plus type of arrangement. They were really contemplating this argument. Norway was a little concerned that this size. Did you share some of those same concerns that uh, that those three Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein, smaller economies would be completely transformed? Uh, should the UK have really seriously considered that option? Well, it obviously would completely changed the dynamics. Um, mm. I explained before this one voice principle that obviously makes it more difficult if you have an additional country to a agree on and if it's a big <laughs> one and the country that uh, likes to go its own way anyway on um, those <coughs> matters. However, <coughs> I see it rather unlikely that the U uh, UK would decide to go this way because uh, you know we take on always very much the same rules that they actually don't want to take on any longer but not all of the rules but some of them and unlike an EU member where you sit at the table where you finally decide whether certain rules are implemented as an EEA member, an FDA EEA member, you can bring yourself in. You're what is called part of the, of the decision shaping, but you're not part of the decision making. Now, that's not a problem for a very small country like us. That was always, you know, we, we never could uh, uh, finally you know, put much influence on the international rules. For a country the size and the history of the UK, um, uh, permanent Security Council member of the, EU, uh, the, the United Nations, I think that would be a very difficult sell uh, at home. So I would be very surprised if they would join uh, the EA agreement through the EFTA side. Now, a very close neighbor and trading partner, Switzerland, has a very different relationship with the European Union. As you said, they made a, a different decision. Uh, the Swiss people wanted a different way. This has been a bit uh, acrimonious right now between the EU and Switzerland because of the complexity of their bilateral relationship. Any concerns that you would have that that would have an impact on, on Liechtenstein as this close neighbor is... Uh, having a very different relationship with the EU? Up to now it worked reasonably well because uh, the Swiss took on a lot of the rules that were made up in uh, the EA context uh, for the common market in order to have this bilateral 
access as well to the common market. Um, the Swiss called it the autonomy nachvollzug, which means um, that they basically decide in autonomy, but uh, take on what was you know, agreed on by the EU states, more or less. Um, currently, there is this difficulty. The EU wants to have them into a framework that is somehow quite similar to the structure that we have, uh, Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, where it would be a more dynamic framework. Currently, they have to negotiate whatever is new in the common market to continue to have this access. Um, if they can't agree, and <coughs> if, as a result, Switzerland uh, is not going so much in parallel with us than they did in the past, then that becomes for us more and more of a problem because we are not only member of the European Economic Zone or the common market through so the EA agreement, but we have a second membership. We are also member through our custom union with Switzerland say in the Swiss economic zone, we, we are the only country in Europe that offers both. That works well as long as Swiss go very much the same line. If they don't do it anymore, then it becomes more and more difficult for us. Well, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating that although a very small population, a very uh, market-oriented economy that requires this open market, how much of an intersection Liechtenstein is and how the EU trades with non-EU countries, all of these dynamics, the non-tariff affairs, you are a microcosm, I think, of this dynamic, flexible mechanism and have taken advantage of this extraordinary opportunity of, the, of an integrated market, but yet very much continuing to preserve your traditions. I think it's fantastic. I think uh, 300 more years of success are in your future. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and happy birthday. Um, audience, uh, please join me in thanking His Highness for a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. His Highness to uh, to go downtown to the front seat so he can uh, enjoy watching his colleagues now sweat Suffer, under my sweat, questions. Sweat, eh? So we will welcome <laughs> our panel pre our panelists to, to please join me up here um, for a little deeper dive into trade dynamics. And I could not think of any more better. Beth, why don't you? We'll have girls and boys right. here. How about that? And uh, Kurt, why don't you stay? Uh, come here. Thank you so much. Well, uh, it said we little set change here, and we now welcome three fantastic colleagues to take a little deeper dive, uh, although they have all assured me we're not going to get trade right. techie wonky, because that's, uh, I can't go there uh, anyway, but three fantastic colleagues. Let me first begin by introducing Ambassador Dirk Voters, the ambassador uh, uh, of Belgium here to the United States. The ambassador uh, uh, joined us here in Washington 
Washington at a very opportune moment, September 2016, so two months prior to the Trump administration uh, coming in, but what a seasoned veteran of Brussels, uh, not just for the bilateral, but because of his uh, longstanding work with the European Union. The ambassador has served as permanent representative of Belgium to the Political and Security Committee of the European Union. Uh, he was served as a, a, a diplomatic advisor to Belgian Prime Minister Herman van Rompuy before he became uh, uh, president of the council, and of course served as permanent representative to the European Union from 2011 to 2016. So intimately involved in all things in the EU as well as understanding of EFTA. And to my immediate right is Ambassador Kurt Yeager, who is the ambassador of the Principality of Liechtenstein to the United States uh, and uh, has also been with us here since 2016. But before that, um, seasoned veteran in Belgium as well as you served as ambassador from uh, to Brussels to the EU uh, from 2010 to 2016. And uh, this is my favorite part of your title. This is, he is Mr. EFTA in my view. He was elected <laughs> as one of three members of the board of the European Free Trade Association Surveillance Authority. That mm. just sounds ominous all in itself, mm. Surveillance Authority. Um, but uh, we are so uh, pleased here at CSIS to have a, a wonderful partnership with the embassy and with Ambassador Yeager. So thank you so much for joining us. And finally, I'm delighted to welcome Beth Boltzend here with us today. Beth is a fellow at the Open Markets Institute. And prior to her position, she served as Democratic Counsel to the House and Ways and Means Subcommittee from 2012 to 2016, where she worked on the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP. Uh, and uh, but prior to that, she was Associate General Counsel uh, in the office of the U.S. United States Trade Representative, USTR, from 2003 to 2009. So you have that Hill and legal perspective, which, as we know, every good trade agreement has to go through. Uh, congressional approval and a lot of legal scrutiny. So we are looking forward to Beth's comments. Okay, I didn't uh, tell you, we just for ease of audience purpose, we created this little, uh, just to have everyone make sure they understood the difference between EFTA and EEA, but we thought we'd give everyone a just a general primer on this and talk about it in, in, in sort of the most constructive terms. And then we'll talk a little bit about mm -hmm. Brexit, hope a, little, a lot about Brexit. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to talk uh, about the US-EU trade relationship, which has uh, taken a few bruises here in the last few months. So Ambassador Mendes, let me start with you. Just offer your reflections from your time in Brussels. Uh, this relationship, FTA, EEA, with an EU uh, country, um, and what are your reflections on this trade relationship? Uh, thank you, Heather, and thank you for having me here uh, in this panel. Now, my, my personal recollections are one of um, um, a success story, I think. I would, I would qualify the, uh, the European economic area, uh, both in terms of the basic treaty that created it, as in terms of the professional, economic, and human relationships that have been uh, established uh, uh, since the creation of the Econ European Economic Area um, uh, between uh, or among 31 countries in, in, in Europe. Uh, on the one hand, 28, uh, still 28 EU member states, and then Liechtenstein, Iceland, and Norway. And, and why uh, I qualify this as a success story from our point of view is that, uh, first of all, uh, as was said before, it gives 
full access to the single market. It's a full access, I think. Um, uh, second, it guarantees uh, uh, the free, uh, the four freedoms, the four freedoms which are not just a slogan in Europe. I mean, there are very strong feelings in Europe about uh, about the uh, the free circulation of persons, goods, uh, capital, and services. So I think it's important, and of course, it also guarantees uh, equal rights in, in terms of everything that's concerned with competition and participation in the economy. It's open for enlargement. If you have new members of the EU, they can also join the EEA. Uh, and I think, uh, finally, um, the, um, the whole question of uniform application of the rules that these 31 countries uh, want to adopt, integrate in their legislation, and, and, and follow up on, um, I think that the, the surveillance and um, keep an eye on the respect of these uh, rules in order to have uniform uh, application, I think uh, a good solution has been found. We call it a two-pillar structure. So you have institutions on the EU side, mainly the European Commission and the Court of Justice. And then on the other side, uh, you have the EFTA Surveillance Authority established in Brussels and, and a separate court. So, and I think that these two pillar structure up to now works relatively well, and it's important to uh, guarantee uniform. So, overall, um, successful, I think a successful model. Uh, is it a soul saving um, model or a model or construction uh, that can uh, provide universal happiness uh, for uh, everybody, all the other countries in the world? Um, I mean, I think we should be um, we should recognize that there are also uh, limits, um, uh, and that it's not a model that you can automatically apply to other situations. Uh, you also, we also have to understand that there are areas of economic activity, and not just economic activity, um, that are not covered by the agreement. Um, uh, most of the common agricultural policy, the fisheries policy, but the economic monetary union, foreign security policy, uh, common trade policy, not covered. So one has to find other arrangements for cooperation or integration regarding these EU policies. And there, of course, you can have two reactions. If there's an interest of one of the three countries, for example, like Norway, take Norway, to do something in a certain field, or on the other hand, the European Union say, we want to do more, for example, on agriculture with Norway. Of course, Norway can say, we are interested, or we drag our feet, or we're not interested. And the European institutions, when they get a request of interest to uh, make an arrangement in the areas that are not covered, they can also say, OK, this is not a priority for us. So there are, there are limits, I think, to, um, uh, to, the, to the construct. And as I said, it's not automatically transposable. To, uh, to other situations, like, for example, the, the situation of the U United Kingdom. Now, my last remark, um, and I'm sorry for the others uh, to ask that question to myself, is this technical, is this complex, and sometimes anecdotal? Uh, absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, and if I can give one illustration, um, 
um, that I remember, and I understand that came up once again this week somewhere in, in one of the meetings in Brussels, that is <laughs> that, is that uh, who has heard of the Faroe Islands? The Faroe Islands. This archipelago I of, I think, Faroe 18... Faroe Islands, yes. Uh, the Kingdom of Denmark. <laughs> yeah, a volcanic island somewhere between Iceland and Norway. It's part of Denmark. Huh? Uh, Denmark is part of the EU and is part of this, a member of the EEA. The Faroe Islands are not, uh, which uh, uh, gives some frustration, I think. And, uh, and the only thing they've been do, uh, they were able to do with the European Union was to make three bilateral agreements. I think it was on science and research, um, on, on, was it fisheries probably? Fisheries, yeah. And the third one maybe trade, trade, I think. Right. They made three bilateral agreements and they want more. They beg for more. I remember my time they were always begging for more and also political engagement. Uh, more political, they were kind of frustrated just to deal with all the technicians in the European commissions and, and they said we win more uh, political um, engagement and political impetus probably. Now uh, the commission said that uh, well maybe it's not a priority for us um, to go in that direction at the moment we have other things to deal with and then um, what happened is that and that's the anecdotal part, I think, of the, uh, the, whole, uh, the whole discussion. When the Faroe Islands were asked to join the European sanctions against Russia, which they normally they would have done, they said, no, 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 no. And then uh, they were able to um, export the products that they wanted to put on the EU market, which were manufactured fish products, or processed, sorry, processed fish products, they were very good at it. Uh, well, they sold it to the Russians, and <laughs> uh, because there, were, uh, there was no negotiation um, uh, or no agreement uh, to sell it on the, um, on the EU market, uh, these new fish products, these processed fish products. So, uh, yes, it, it can be complex, and it can be sometimes anecdotal. It works, but there's some exceptions to yeah. it works. Yeah. Ambassador, your reflections. What's the surveillance authority like? <laughs> Sounds well, a little ominous. The, the surveillance authority is basically, we try to mirror the European institutions. We didn't use the word commission. It was already occupied by the European <laughs> Union. Oh, so that was the authority. Uh, so that's what we call it. Uh, there's an abbreviation, ESA, ASOP, we call it. Um, but there's a difference, of course. The commission has not only a surveillance function, but has also a political function. They are something like a government. They propose legislation. And uh, that is a component that's completely missing from the surveillance authority, the EFTA pillar, which is a good thing, actually, for the surveillance work, because often the commission, having two hats on, mm. can undermine its credibility when it goes after a state for not for failing to comply with European legislation. Some they, they claim to have a hidden agenda. They're mm. trying to push legislation and take a case. So the fact that ESA doesn't have that role gives it a little bit more standing and mobility, a better reputation of being an independent. 
Um, otherwise, the same structure, even organizationally within the authorities, mirrored. We have the same directors generals with internal market and competition and state aid. We try to, and there's a very close dialogue between that authority and the Commission because you want to make sure that your cases are aligned with the practice of the European Commission because at the end, when you end up in court, you're asking for the European Commission to support you. They intervene in the case, and if they mm. disagree with you, you have a difficult position winning your case in court. Mm. Uh, and the after court is, is, is really also a mirroring of, the only difference is the, the powers of the court don't go as far when it comes to, for example, <coughs> imposing fines on states uh, for failing to comply with legislation. There, we rely on a system of construct where uh, if a, case, a, a country loses a case in court, you can sue the state for, li for liability, for failing to comply. And that is a sufficient threat normally to discipline a state. Um, but I mean, to mm -hmm. going back to what you said, dear, I mean, it is probably a historical opportunity. It was one in the mm -hmm. 1990s to get that done. Mm -hmm. Don't forget the EFTA side, the pillar com was composed of seven states. Mm -hmm. It was really two multilateral organizations concluding agreements. So it's not, you know, bilateral ones with each individual state. It was two big trading blocks. And the law at that time, his vision, I think, was right. He said, why would we fight each other? Let's try to join forces. And the compromise of having two, uh, two separate institutions on the EFTA pillar side of their own would not have been possible in a bilateral agreement. Let's face it. I mean, it looks weird to have an independent court if there's only one member state. Um, so now we've shrunk to three. We had a discussion, what happens if we shrink to two? When Iceland, at one point, right. Iceland is here, uh, joining the European Union, there were some discussions. Now, amazingly, the agreement caters for that sort of situation. We would, for example, then co-op the third member of the court, co-op the third member of the commission to make sure you always have three. So they actually wisely anticipated that situation. It never came to that. Maybe one of these days it is. It's, uh, is, it, is it considered an anteroom uh, in some ways? Uh, I mean, Norway, who knows? Uh, maybe it would to. someday, although you can't see that politically right mm -hmm. now. I think the exercise with Iceland was, was healthy because yeah. we, we, we discussed it through and through with the European Union. What okay. would happen if, and everybody said, this is not going to jeopardize the agreement. And amazing, I mean, you have to admit, when the EA was negotiated, it was for most states, because at the beginning we were not a member, it was considered a transitional regime. And most of them left and went to the European Union anyway. The Swiss, obviously, one of the reasons why they didn't jo join was they were afraid of the second step, joining the European Union, which was not, did not have sufficient support in the population. And Norway, as you know, had their vote on it. They tried also to join the European Union afterwards, but it was rejected by their people. So the temporary regime turned out to be quite long enduring, <coughs> 20 years now, 25 years soon. Um, that's quite a long period for transitional arrangement. All right, Beth, let's swing to the transatlantic part of this. I, I'm going to just uh, tell our audience, and you told us, as you were reading EFTA, you said it was elegant. I have never heard of a trade agreement described <laughs> elegant. as elegant. So I want to hear why you think it's elegant. Well, one of the issues that we have with trade and the backlash against trade, this actually gets into the regulatory issues and non-tariff barriers. These agreements are now, the, the USMCA is 32 chapters long. I think very few people have actually read it. I think very few people know what's in it. And that seems to have no relationship at all to whether people support it or not. So last night when I was looking at EFTA, it's a 30-page agreement. The intellectual, chapter, chapter, uh, intellectual property chapter alone in USMCA is twice that length. 
So this brings up the question of what exactly are we trying to do with these trade agreements? What is their purpose? What is the goal? I think the top line goal has always been that trade agreements are supposed to aid peace and prosperity. That's supposed to be the top line message. My own personal view is that when you look at the substance of these agreements, I don't think those two things are connected anymore. And I think we have to step back and really reevaluate what we're doing. We, we always take our existing trade agreements and then we add on to them. I think the same is perhaps true um, in the European Union. You'll start with CETA, we'll start with TPP or USMCA, mm -hmm. and we proceed from there. What I'd like to see us do with the Europeans is hit the pause button on that and say, what are we trying to accomplish and what are the rules that will help us accomplish that? Well, and I, I think this is also bringing this up to a strategic understanding. So often, and this is not because I cannot uh, understand the technical specifications of it, but you lose people in the technical specifications of that, even though I understand it represents millions and millions of dollars in, in jobs. I'm not, I, I fully respect it. But you lose the popular support if people don't understand how those hundreds and hundreds of pages impact their lives. And if I could add to that, because some of the rules that people don't look at are the most important rules, and they're the content rules. The manufacturing content rules in US agreements are really, really weak. So they allow third parties to basically free ride on the agreement. It is no wonder that the manufacturing sector in the United States was in revolt. And if you look at the states that were swing states in the election in 2016, those were blue collar states. That's Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. That's where you see the highest import penetration from China. I think we have to, we have to really look at the rules and understand what we're doing and not just be dismissive of people who are critical of these agreements as not having taken introductory economics. These agreements aren't about introductory economics anymore. They're very, very detailed. Somebody called it a business regulatory document. People have been <coughs> consciously left behind in these agreements. And instead of dismissing their concerns, I think we have to be much more considerate about how to address them. Speaking of potent politics and it comes to trade and integration, let's talk about Brexit a little bit. Um, and think about, although we don't know where this story will go or where it will end and what kind of uh, relationship uh, the United Kingdom will have with the European Union in the future. That's still to be determined. Um, Ambassador, let me start with you. Help us understand, and I'm going to have you both from the EU perspective, mm -hmm. um, how do we get towards a more positive future dynamic with a very large economy that's going to be outside of the EU, but perhaps connected to it? Ambassador, how does this what are the implications for Liechtenstein, EFTA, EEA, as you think about that regulatory issue? And then Beth, I'll turn here. How do we, how does the United States think about the Brexit conversation, particularly as we're hearing lots of enthusiasm about a U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement? So let me start with the EU perspective. Well, if, if the question is about how do we get to a better dynamic and then have a, a sound basis for a, a future trade relationship, or relationship uh, between the UK and the EU, um, I would say the, of course, the first step would be uh, ideally to have a deal on the uh, on the exit because probably it's much better uh, to build that future rela trade relationship between EU and the United Kingdom if you have first made a deal on the terms of the separation. Uh, also psychologically, it makes a huge difference. Um, if you have to start uh, a trade negotiation 
and you're mentally too far apart because there has been increased animosity about, let's say, the hard Brexit, if that's the scenario. We can talk about this, of course, which scenario that uh, we will eventually, we might go to. But uh, if that's the scenario, then it's more difficult to, to construct uh, something uh, that, and it will probably take more time. It will take a lot of time anyway, I think, the, um, uh, the negotiation of a trade relationship between the EU and, and the United Kingdom. But the business operators that des deserve an agreement, I mean, they have to know what kind of game they're playing. Citizens also deserve that there is some understanding what their situation will be. Research people deserve that. Think tankers deserve that there is an agreement between the UK and the, and the European Union. But having, and also, of course, uh, it's probably, from an, uh, an economic point of view, fair to say that the UK um, needs it even more than the EU because I think it's about 47% of their overall trade that goes to the continent, whereas the continent only sends 10% of its overall trade to the UK. So there is a bit of a, a difference in, in, the, in, in the percentages of of trade one way, but they, on both sides they deserve an agreement. But let's be fair and coming back to the EEA, there is no uh, free uh, trade agreement, even if the, negos the British negotiators do the most brilliant job, get the, most, the best result from the, their point of view, there will never be a free trade agreement that brings the same benefits as the European economic area in terms of access to the single market. doesn't exist. So we have to know this and realize this, that uh, it will not be the same benefits. Now, my last remark um, is that it's not just about trading goods, of course, this future relationship. It's also about remaining close to other EU policies, which are important for the UK. Uh, foreign security policy, uh, exchange uh, of information between police uh, uh, and intelligence community, very important, very important, um, and other EU policies. Uh, and um, <clears throat> it's also about the big or the most significant EU programs. I mean, uh, I mean, UK has been the, and rightly so, the greatest beneficiary of the big scientific support programs of the European Commission. Uh, if you, you have the best research people in Europe, you deserve, I think, uh, to be supported. So uh, they, want, they will probably want to stay close one way or the other to that. There are other programs uh, of the same importance. I mean, exchange of students uh, and so on. And, and then finally also, I think it's about um, kind of finding a relationship with some of the agencies. I know the rapport or the, uh, and the contribution of also the uh, Liechtenstein, Norway, and Iceland, and Switzerland to the agencies, the relationship is an, an issue, and, and I understand why, but this also will in the future be an issue for the United Kingdom. Think about trademarks, patents, drugs, 
and other issues for which there are EU agencies. So it's much wider than just trade. And, uh, but it would take a lot of time. And I think that um, um, it's not just the, the exercise of finding a, a bilateral agreement. It's also for the U UK an exercise, and that, is, that already luckily has started, to finding a replacement of, for all the EU trade agreements with, I think, 40, no, 70 countries around the world. There are 40 trade agreements from which they benefit today. So, and that covers, according to my, the figures I saw a couple of years ago, that covers a huge chunk of their, the value of their economy. So the added value of this and the benefits of the European trade agreements with 70 countries in the world, uh, covering, I think, around 60% of the world economy, uh, the UK, when they get out of the EU, they lose that benefit. And so they need continuity agreements, as they are called. They've already started to negotiate them. But if they lose that benefit, it will be a huge hit to their economy. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. And Kurt, before I turn to you, I, we had a conversation last night that in some ways, so much of the Brexit conversation has been about the uh, border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, the backstop. Mm. Uh, and some could make comparisons. The Northern Ireland economy and the size of that could and, be uh, a little bit of a comparison. Yeah to Liechtenstein, to the EEA dynamic. Help us think that through a little bit as well. Let me, I think you can make that uh, comparison. There is a model that Your Highness you referred to, this, this dual marketability concept that we had to come up with to stay in the customs union with Switzerland and join the <laughs> common market. So because we were so small, or are so small, the European Union was willing to grant us a privilege because we had a customs union with Switzerland we wanted to continue to serve the Swiss market without any border controls but we wanted to access the common market as well now that's in itself a contradiction but when you look at the development over the past decades in the area of trade of goods more and more of the control mechanisms when it comes to verifying whether goods comply with standards don't occur at the border anyway they're backpacked at the level of the company and services, anyway, you don't need borders to tax services. They're irrelevant. So it's a small country. The concept was that you say, we, we do verification at the level of the Liechtenstein companies. So the, you can decide as a company whether you want to serve the Swiss market only. Then you only have to comply with Swiss standards, but you cannot serve the European Union market. Or you decide, <coughs> I want to produce for the European Union market, and then the company that manufactures is verified, checked on spot <coughs> that the standards are met. In practice, it turned out that pr practically all companies opt for the European Union market. And because, as Your Highness said, the Swiss have anyway unilaterally decided to align their standards with the European Union, we don't have a problem. So with services anyway, you, if you want to make sure the service provider complies with European standards, you'll have to do it at a level of a company. It's either licensed, has a European passport, it doesn't. You don't need a border control for that. So if you were to assume that the size matters for principle, applies to Northern Ireland as well. It's just too small. It's un, you know, relatively mm. overseeable. You could probably transpose that. Now, they weren't part of the Schengen anyway, so there wouldn't be any new, new additional border controls. And 
The tariffs are the only thing that remain at the end. Uh, you'd have to have, if you look at the EFTA tariffs with the European Union, they're very low. If the UK were to agree with the European Union at, on a level of tarification for goods as we have with EFTA, the burden would not be significant. The biggest impediment to trade for a company is we pay European Union tariffs like this. Mm. is not the tariffs. Mm. It's the compliance with the standards, the access, the non-tariff barriers, and that you could solve, saying that all companies serving the no. European Union market out of Northern Ireland would be subject to European standards. I think that would be a possible thing. Stretch, but uh, the condition is that the UK accepts a separate regime for Northern Ireland. That's a political decision. I mean, nobody could take that for them. Let it be said that you have, you may have solved the Gordon knot <laughs> of the backstop. I just want it to be it's said here first. Thank you so much. Uh, all right, Beth, uh, help us um, think through the mechanics of the magnificent U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement that is on our horizon with understanding that we just got so many complexities because we don't know how, when, right. under what conditions the U.K. will leave the European Union. But I, right. I would welcome your thoughts. We've already heard from speakers. Speaker Pelosi, some concerns about how uh, this, you know, the impact on the Good Friday Agreement. Exactly. So just welcome your thoughts putting on both your USTR, but as well as the time you served on the Hill. Right. So, and it's, it's, it started with uh, Mr. Neal, who is the chairman of Ways and Beans. He expressed concern over the effects on Good Friday. Then it made its way to Speaker Pelosi and uh, Senator Schumer, uh, Minority Leader Schumer, has also talked about it. So I think when you've got those three people talking about it, that should be a real um, warning sign that the, the way the backstop is resolved is going to have an impact on what the U.S. does. There's a very interesting wrinkle that just happened, which is the U.S. and Japan recently concluded an agreement that, according to the administration, does not have to go through Congress. Um, and that's going to be very controversial with Congress and could affect the relationship between the administration and Congress on trade. So leaving all of that aside, in terms of substance, um, this gets actually quite a bit into the regulatory issues we were talking about. One of the most controversial issues when I was handling TTIP on the Hill was the EU, including the UK, wanting to be exempt from certain financial requirements that the United States had imposed after the financial crisis. Um, now, the SEC is busy unwinding those, so maybe that won't be an issue after all. But those are the kinds of issues that are present that we don't often talk about because we're so concerned with the bilateral high-level relationship. And that's, once again, an area where I think we have to decide what, what we're trying to accomplish and then make sure the rules fulfill what we're trying to accomplish and not the other way around. So can I just go back a little bit on this, this the, using the executive agreement for the U.S.-Japan? Is that a, I mean, barring the contrast, is that a model? Can the um, executive branch do that? And would they mm. increasingly do it? Uh, could there be a U.S.-U.K. digital trade chapter, uh, very similar <coughs> to what the U.S.-Japan uh, agreement has covered. Right. So the the it's very complex because the U.S. doesn't tend to do these one-off type agreements that are not covering substantially all trade. So this is uncharted territory, and that's why it's potentially such an issue with Congress, because Congress has never sort of endorsed this idea of doing these mini agreements. Um, and I, I don't want to get wonky, so I'll say I think digital trade is in a different bucket because Congress, there's it's a question of constitutional authority. So 
So I would just put digital trade in a different bucket, and we can talk about that more if people are interested. The issue with Japan is that once you're talking about tariffs and the rules that are around those tariffs, then you're talking about a very particular provision in one law, the Trade Promotion Authority, that has never been used for that purpose. Mm. And that Congress is very concerned. It was intended, really, if you read the legislative history, to deal with WTO sectoral <clears throat> issues. So the Information Technology Agreement, the Environmental Goods Agreement, where you have a subset of WTO members who are agreeing on something, but then those benefits are extended to everyone. The idea of using that provision to try to do a bilateral agreement on a, on, that's a sort of mini trade agreement, I think is very, very controversial. Um, and we don't exactly know how that's going to pan out. Very helpful. It almost sounds like we're, we're making, as the Swiss have done these very narrow bilateral agreements with the EU, it sounds like that's sort of in the keeping with what the US is trying to do under, under Japan. Fascinating. OK, I'm going to keep pulling our concentric circles out here. I'm going to talk about the transatlantic trade relationship. So clearly, um, we, speaking of the WTO, had a very uh, significant decision uh, that allows the US to impose tariffs on the EU for Airbus subsidies. We already have existing US tariffs on steel and aluminum, some countermeasures that the EU has placed. I worry that we are, we are sliding into a very adversarial trade relationship with the EU. Ambassador, please dispel my fears that uh, we are not putting ourselves into a more adversarial position. And please give me hope that there is encouragement that the US and the EU are moving ahead on a new trade agreement. Uh, and how does that work with a new commission coming into a place with a new trade commissioner, Irish uh, Commissioner Phil Hogan? Help us walk us through that dynamic. Well. <laughs> But it's still, uh, it's still a field of uncertainty, of course, and a, a trajectory of uncertainty. Uh, but the, um, I think we could all agree here easily, here in the room, in the panel, that uh, all the economic and uh, arguments in favor of trying to lift up each other's economies on both sides of the Atlantic through uh, a good understanding of what we like to achieve with our in our trade relationship would be a great plus. I mean, and 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 uh, and, and all the arguments I hear today in favor of uh, um, a, a UK-US trade uh, uh, deal after the UK would have left the European Union. I mean, I wish that some of those, especially the economic ones, would be transposed to the discussion Agree. Agree. Uh, between <laughs> the United States and you on because Agree. economically it it's the same yeah. the same it makes the same sense so that's uh, one preface to uh, but where where are we i think uh, you 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 put your your finger on the, the most delicate of question of the moment um, airbus and uh, and lockheed the subsidy, uh, the subsidy uh, files, on which yes, the, both sides will have will be in a position that they will have a legal basis soon uh, to impose uh, compensatory measures on the other side. Now, the difference with all the other files is that here there is a legal basis. That's the big difference. I mean, uh, the U.S. is perfectly. The administration is entitled to do what, uh, and then there will be there's a risk of countermeasures, and if Europe does the same, uh, so uh, I'm 
myself, I'm afraid this will happen or happen in part, despite the fact that there is at the same time, uh, I, I think a real desire in the US administration to, to, um, to start uh, fresh and uh, uh, to do a kind of reset with the new EU leadership. I mean, Secretary Pompeo has been reaching out, but not just Secretary Pompeo, uh, uh, early September, in an unexpected trip to Europe, or at least an unexpected trip to Brussels. And, and, and there are other contacts ongoing, informal, that indicate that, uh, or that at least uh, express a willingness um, to start afresh. Now, uh, this coincides exactly at the moment that the WTO will give probably the authority to, uh, to take a certain number of measures. So that will not be a, but the big, the big file on which I hope and uh, we can continue to fight off a worsening of the transatlantic trade relationship, that is of course the cost. But there we're talking about big, big trade. It's about billions and billions and billions. Uh, and uh, there, my sense is that uh, the date to t uh, for a decision will be more postponed in time, I think. Okay. Um, and then there are other, other issues on which there is, luckily, we can report some progress. I mean, there has been in the White House uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a signing ceremony uh, on uh, the export uh, of the United States to Europe of hormone-free beef. Uh, sorry to mention this uh, in the morning, uh, early morning, but uh, okay, that was, uh, and I think that one could imagine that uh, the same positive spin can be given. Uh, an agreement could be made if I wanted on LNG export, which is going up US to, the, to Europe in significant numbers, I must say. Um, and then, of course, and but then uh, on the um, on the trade agreement in itself, it remains my conviction that at the moment, and this is not just true for the European Union, this is also true for other trading partners of the United States, like Japan and some others. We can only do smaller things. We cannot do the big trade agreement at, in the current circumstances. As public opinion is not right for that, that's very clear. So we will try to do some niche things, uh, and, uh, and we hope that uh, some of these niche or smaller agreements will also cover the technical standards that were mentioned, and which are so important, and on which we can gain a lot of money. I mean, I mean, what's the point for a car industry, for example, or another manufacturing industry, to have two production lines in order to comply with two different Types of standard. I mean, it's a loss of money. It's it's it's. If you visit these factories, you, you say, why do you have two production lines? Well, it's well, that doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. So there should be a way to have a, a more recognition of each other's standards in the different sectors that are relevant for the trade between Europe and the United States. I think pharmaceuticals is another point of case. Kurt, how does this? How does the impact of the the US-EU tariff dynamic, how does it impact Liechtenstein? <clears throat> I think, in a nutshell, you have to imagine that over 60% of our exports go to the European Union. Um, 
and I don't know the figures because they're not, we don't have that detailed level of, of analysis, but I'd say the large part of the yeah. export to Germany would be supplying to other manufacturers components that end up in a finalized European product and that goes overseas. So take the example of car industry, we have these two companies, Liechtenstein, are major providers of components for mm -hmm. the car industry. If the German car industry is hit by tariffs, uh, uh, these companies will be affected, of course. There will be a decline in, 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 in sales. So we're so strongly integrated in the common market with the European industry that, that any trade conflict transatlantic between the European Union and the US would directly impact us. We're not shielded. The peculiarity for us when it comes to trade relations, and the F does not, does not cover trade relations with the European Union. We have our own agreements all over, covering about 42 uh, countries. With our customs union with Switzerland, we're also covered by bilateral trade agreements, which Switzerland can do outside EFTA. Uh, for example, they have one with Japan. So we're covered by that. EFTA does not. And the Swiss, as you've heard in the news, are trying to conclude a free trade agreement with the United States. So if that were to happen, we would benefit from that, regardless of the EA and regardless of EFTA. You guys got it covered. Well, we all depend on others. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Beth, uh, what are your thoughts on where we are with USEU relations, trade relations? And you've had you have different, I think, I, what I so admire about Beth, she has really very different views about the transatlantic trade relationship, which I, I think are very refreshing okay. to express them. Um, <laughs> I have an op-ed in the LA Times that, that would be inflammatory. So you can read that on your own. Okay. I don't want to be inflammatory here. I'll okay. be a good girl today in honor of His Highness. But, um, I think from my perspective, the most important thing to take away is these tensions have existed for a long time. And the legislative history shows that these tensions existed in the 50s. So the idea that this is all about President Trump, I think, is a mistake. And it would be a mistake to go forward and think that should he not be reelected, or if you want to wait till 2025, that all of a sudden everything's going to be OK. It's an enormous, enormous mistake. And we will find ourselves in this position again. My, my, the broadest perspective is that the entire modern trading relationship is grounded in what happened after World War II. And there was a structural situation where the United States was the only functioning economy. And the goal was to get everybody else up and running. I don't think we've ever corrected for that structural imbalance. I think it's manifest today. And I don't think the United States can actually be that shock absorber for the system the way it has been for the last 70 years. This issue came up in the 70s. For anybody who's really interested in this, mm -hmm. look at some of the things Nixon was doing in the early 70s. He was frustrated. And that's how we ended up coming off the gold standard. That was the first attack on, on the Bretton Woods system. We may be in a position where we're there again, and I think it behooves all of us, again, step back, stop sort of pushing with every agreement we've done and you know, do it again. Um, step back and ask ourselves what we're trying to accomplish and how we can help each other. My, my, my bottom line view is that the Europeans tend to view us as competitors. We tend to view the, the Europeans as allies. And we have to have a conversation about that. And we have to discuss our perceptions. And we have to discuss how we're going to cooperate. Because I do think the backlash against globalization is, is worldwide. And there are common threats that we need to be able to deal with. I don't think we've been in a position to deal with that very constructively based on my experience. Well, I am so proud of myself. For an hour and 15 minutes, I have not said the word China, but that is now coming to the end. I'm going to talk about China now. Um, 
let's just put this into context, and then I want to bring the audience in uh, for any additional questions. Part of, Beth, what you're saying is restructuring ourselves. This is not the post-World War II environment. This is structuring, in my humble view, a Western alliance of rules and norms to meet the challenge of an enormous economy that is altering those rules and norms, both externally and internally to our economies. And Bass, let me start with you. Let's think about China. Next year, there will be a major EU-China summit under the German rotating presidency. Where is the EU perspective on China as a trading partner? For Liechtenstein, how does this impact you? And then, Beth, I'm going to give you the last word in sort of thinking about China from a US perspective. Ambassador. Well, I think from the European perspective, the time that uh, European leaders uh, with uh, business leaders in their delegation for years for, uh, went to China just to do business and sign business deals, I think that era is over. I think we are moving towards a more assertive period, uh, which is reflected also in the way that uh, European representatives are negotiating with the, with the Chinese counterpart, including in preparation of summits like the one you mentioned. So more, more, more assertive, uh, assertiveness, because uh, I think we see the same um, uh, rise of consciousness in Europe, uh, not just about maybe certain policies uh, that um, in China, but also about the activities in China on our territories, like it is the case in the United States. Uh, so I think there will be a bit of a mental change in Europe. I don't think that there is uh, any willingness to go into uh, using the instrument of tariffs. Europe against uh, China. I don't think they were there, but we, we have other instruments uh, in order to, um, let's say, uh, uh, go against uh, unfair competition, and there is quite, quite a lot of them. But, uh, so I think we are, um, we are in this transition period in, in Europe towards something new. Um, um, and of course, we are a bit, it's true that Geographically and in the mind of people, the distance with China is probably a bit longer and greater than, than it's the case here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Ambassador? Well, I can be very brief. I mean, it's obvious for a country like us, so highly dependent on exports, that any disruption of trade patterns worldwide has severe consequences for us. We just as a small country also understand, maybe better than large ones, how important the rule of law is and legal certainty is. So, we certainly are more than some countries believers in, in multilateral institutions and the legal certainty they provide. So we definitely hope that the problems we do have with China, all of us do, um, that they can be solved within the framework of the institution that exists. And China so far, I must say, you could say they have to abide by all the rules, but they have never indicated that they don't want to use the institutions. So at least for mm -hmm. the faithful two are working within WTO, um, the United States has a different standing. They try maybe otherwise. But I'm not sure in the end that's the most productive way to approach the problem. Well, I would say that's a great segue, Beth, because sometimes I hear 
from uh, American colleagues telling me that you know, the WTO was never designed to deal with a China and how mm. China impacts both using institutions and rules <laughs> but for other purposes, which gets us sort of to U.S. support for those Bretton Woods right. types of institutions, which the WTO is sort of a manifestation. Right. I mean, if you go back again to 1947, uh, the Soviet Union decided it didn't want to participate in the talks. So once the Soviet Union was out, the entire system was supposed to be designed to promote free enterprise and keep state trading out. There was actually a second document um, that, that the United States business community frustrated, which was the Havana Charter. It, th this system was never supposed to be all about tariff liberalization and nothing else. There were competition rules, there were enforceable labor standards, there were disciplines on investors, and real rules against currency manipulation. If that agreement had been in place, in 1948 the way it was supposed to be, our entire trading relationship with China would be different today. I will say this, I don't have confidence that the WTO as a consensus-based organization has the capacity to really deal with this issue. Um, and I'd like to see us sort of not talk about this as though these problems were never anticipated because the architects of the system anticipated them in 1948. We just, the United States is responsible for the fact that that never actually got executed. Um, so you know, in the United States being sort of at the present the most lucrative market in the world, we're the ones, again, as the shock absorber, we're the ones who've borne the brunt of the excess Chinese subsidies and the state-owned enterprises, and it's not just state-owned enterprises. Um, and I think that's why you're seeing the US grown the most under the strain of the way the global trading system has emerged. What's interesting is that as a result of the tariffs, you're starting, the, the, the national security tariffs, you're starting to see other countries feel the pinch a little bit. And I hope that people can take away from that that the experiences the United States have had, this isn't just being bombastic, it's not being jingoistic, it's not being nationalistic. There is real pain that has been felt as a result of the way the global trading system is structured. And if we want to save it and do something better, we've really got to come to terms with that. Fantastic. I love that concept of, of shock absorbing until we stop and then others feel the pain. I think that's very true with European companies. And in China, there was a bit of a delayed response to that. All right, I put them through their paces, but I'm sure there are questions out into our audience that I have not covered. So if you have a question for our audience, uh, please stand up and we'll <coughs> hand you a microphone. Short question, I'm going to take as many and then I'm just going to return back to our panel one last time for a final conversation. Of course, we have, oh, we have two up here, so we'll start here, uh, Diana, over, over there. Thank you. The referendum system can be yeah. tricky uh, when it comes to international agreements. Um, the United States discovered this uh, in a, a negotiation with Liechtenstein some years ago uh, in the law enforcement area where there was a question of whether the implementation of the agreement would be subject to a referendum. Um, how does the referendum system work in trade context? Given the consequences of the referendum in the UK, 
um, is there any similar sort of backlash uh, against trade in the system? Sir, did you have a question? If you just want to pass the microphone. Oops, Deanna, right, we'll just do the front row here, and then, sir, we'll pass it to you. Okay, thank you very much, Alexander Kravitz. I'm a former trade diplomat from El Salvador, and I want to also ask a question of Ambassador Yeager to pick up on something that His Highness said. 38,000 people, very small government, and you mentioned that the difficulty of, you know, sort of keeping up with all these regulations. I wonder if maybe to take it down into the weeds somewhat, if you could tell us about about that, and I'm, um, I'm wondering if, if some of that experience, because it is difficult to keep up with those uh, uh, regulations, could apply perhaps to some of the developing countries in terms of you mm. know, how, how do they just deal with that you know, sea wave of, of, of regulations? Thank you. Thank you. I think we're on our third microphone, sir, so we're going to have, we're going to hand uh, you with a new one. Hold on. Go ahead. <laughs> One of these, one of them will work one of these times. Yes, sir, please. Uh, hello, um, my name is uh, Krishna Mari. I'm a freshman at American University. Um, I have a question for the Belgian ambassador. Um, Boris Johnson has said that in the scenario of a no-deal Brexit, um, that the UK could still abide by the provisions of GATT 24 and enjoy um, tariff-free trade with the European Union for a period of up to 10 years. Um, I was wondering if you could help to qualify or dispel his logic. <laughs> I might ask Beth to help disqualify that logic as well. So great, two for you, Kurt, one on the GATT 24, and uh, maybe Beth can offer some thoughts on that as well. Kurt? I mean, we have, as you said, the same system as Switzerland when it comes to referenda, and referenda extend to international treaties as well. Trade is a little bit of a tricky one because of the customs union. We, when we signed the customs union with Switzerland, we accepted that we'd be covered by their trade agreements. You can't opt out. I mean, then you, we'd have to leave the customs union. So now that, what helps us maybe a little bit is that the trade agreements are only binding for us as far as they concern the goods. Services, and that's an issue that's more and more being covered by trade agreements as well, there we have an opportunity. We want, we, unlikely politically would we do that. See, there's a quite a large similarity in the way of thinking between the Liechtensteiners and the Swiss. We're both highly export reliant. We both have a very specialized niche-driven industry. So if the Swiss come to a conclusion that a trade agreement is acceptable to them, it's very unlikely that we would come to a fundamentally different understanding. We're so highly dependent, our economies on each other, that we definitely benefit more by following the Swiss line of thought and take, trying to take our own view when it comes to trade with third countries. When it comes to the European Union, we have taken our own path. So I think that in that area has not played out to become a problem. As you said, you have the area of judicial cooperation, of course, we're completely independent, and then we can take different positions. The question about how do we cope with the challenge being small countries, I mean, that's a, a, a very current question. I'm constantly being asked here in the United States. And I think being small has advantages. You can simulate, you can play models, uh, exercise, experiment with things more easily. The, the lead times for transformation in our country are much, much shorter than a large country. Um, we did a major, major restructuring of our budget. Within two years, we cut out 20% of our budget. Uh, you cannot do that with a country with 80 million people. It's not going to happen. It's much more complicated. So <clears throat> to give an illustration, we were approached for many times and still are being approached by Andorra, San Marino, Monaco. 
They're trying to come up with a deal with the European Union. Now, EEA is not an option for them for various reasons, but they're going to try to find a kind of association agreement. But it's going to be something like subjecting themselves to European standards. So they're concerned, the European Commission was concerned, how are these states going to cope with their requirements? Are they going to be able to comply to that burden? And we can teach them a little bit from our experience and how you do that best. And they're small things sometimes, the way you run your administration. You've got to be very lean. When you have a different language, you make sure you don't have a constitutional requirement that you have to translate every single regulation in your national language. That's a huge burden. Um, but when you're a small country, what you learn more easily than a large one is you, you accept that standards might not always be invented by you. And the standards set by others are not always bad. So by accepting that you have to live by standards that developed internationally takes a lot of burden off your legislative process. I mean, if we in Liechtenstein had to come up with all those sophisticated standards in consumer protection and pharmaceuticals and chemicals, I mean, we don't even have the expertise to do that. So if the politicians understand that, you know, take it as it is, they're probably not that dumb in Brussels if they develop rules on chemicals and pharmaceuticals. They're probably not that bad. And it's unlikely that we will come up with much better ones. So that political acceptance that you incorporate with others and you give up part of your sovereignty makes it easy. If you do not behave that way, then I think it's practically impossible because it would just drag you, you'd be overcharged administration. Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you for that question. I don't know which specific directives uh, the British government has sent to their custom officials in terms of application of or non-application of tariffs at the border. But our understanding and also my understanding is that uh, if there is a no deal, that uh, what becomes applicable is the WTO regime which, in the case of the UK, would mean that in that trade with the continent, the average tariff would move from zero, which is the case today, to, on average, 6%. And sometimes, depending on the products, more than 6%, which certainly is the case, especially for agricultural products. That's our understanding. But I think your question illustrates also that it's very difficult to deal with a no deal uh, in, uh, and uh, that if it comes, unfortunately, to that situation, I think business might depend also a lot on the several call centers which will be set up on both sides. Just let me turn to Beth. What would a no deal Brexit go to GATT rules, what, what impact would that have on the U.S. and U.S. dynamics if you could just reflect on that, I, it would certainly be a shock. It would be a shock. It reminds me a little bit of the situation where we've been talking about whether to withdraw from NAFTA or not. I think we underestimate the nature of supply chain dependency mm -hmm. as a result of all these trading arrangements, which is often a good thing. It's sometimes a bad thing. So I just want to put that caveat in there. But um, to me, the, the sudden imposition of tariffs um, is, is potentially, uh, across all products, mm -hmm. right, across all trading relationships, is potentially very disruptive. And I, you know, on GATT Article 24, if the mm -hmm. UK's position is that you can somehow univo unilaterally invoke something in 
Article 24 to preserve your duty-free relationship. It's a question to me of what the directives say. I don't think there's anything in Article 24 that would let them do that on no. their own without the EU's no, cooperation. So it's going to be sticky, I think. And we have, oh, yeah. uh, what is today's day count? Day 32 until October the 31st, maybe, if I have my days right. So we will look forward to those answers. Let me just say and begin with your highness, thank you so much for your framing remarks, a wonderful discussion, and thank you, colleagues. We dove into a lot of issues. You did not get wonky, I assure you of that. <laughs> but we all have a better understanding of EFTA, EEA, uh, a nimble, small economy surrounded by the EU, dynamics within the EU on Brexit, the US, and then thinking about future challenges, current challenges, China. What a great conversation. I feel like uh, we've ended the week on a high note. It was a difficult <laughs> week, but we did it. Colleagues, please join me in thanking our panelists for a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you.